Open your Bibles, please, to Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5. We will use verse 16 as, and since our jumping off point, uh, to continue our study in the vice of sloth. Verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature. We began a study on the vices, two in particular, sloth and vainglory. Just to remind you that as we look at this, in a sense, we are fighting a two-front war. On the Christian front, uh, the focus is oftentimes on individual sins rather than on vices, patterns of behavior. Sins as individual acts or thoughts seem to be our focus, and oftentimes we, we almost obsess about them rather than thinking about the long term. Sins are like snapshots and vices are like films. They are patterns of behavior. And so on one level, we have to argue to people with Christians say, this is really important. The vices are important. On the secular front, we find that modern and contemporary culture basically dismisses these things. It redefines the vices, it trivializes them, it psychologizes them, and it basically leaves them meaning little or nothing. And as we live in this culture, I think we may find ourselves more affected by it than we might imagine. It may be that some think that a series of sermons on sloth is really unnecessary for them. It's not a problem for them. They're hardworking, they're not marked by carelessness, apathy, laziness, lack of effort. But as I suggested last week, what if in fact being lazy, if you wish, and being busy or being a workaholic are in fact two symptoms of the same vice, that is sloth. The case can be made that apathetic inertia the lazy person, and the perpetual motion of a busy person, both could reveal a heart that is afflicted by the vice of sloth. But how, how can this be? They're opposite ends of the spectrum, so to speak. As I said last week, we need to go back to the 4th century, the original definition of sloth found among the Desert Fathers. And they chose a word which means literally a lack of care. They saw it as a vice. And this sloth, they saw as expressed in dejection or feelings of oppression or even disgust. They didn't see sloth as being lazy per se. That's a very modern, uh, I would say the last two or three centuries, vision of what it means to be slothful. Rather, they saw sloth as frustration, hate, and disgust at where we are, our place, and life itself. Remember, the Desert Fathers were hermits, some of them were monks, and as they wrote about this demon, the noonday demon, as they call it, that would afflict monks, these are people who are living out in the middle of nowhere, and the idea is, I don't want to live here, I should live in a better place. So, they saw sloth as, in a sense, abhorring what God had given them. Basically, they came to abhor reality and the limits imposed upon them. So I said last week, in a real sense, sloth rejects happiness, what God intends for us, and chooses sorrow instead, chooses to be unhappy instead. 
It's a sad rejection of a loving, intimate union with the Creator. Aquinas said sloth is an aversion to the good that is within us, the divine good within us. And we live in a time in which our society is in open revolt against God's law. We live in a time of sloth. See, rather than causing delight, just sheer delight and comfort in listening to the story that God tells us of creation, people find the story of creation as repugnant and as something that is contrary to their desire for freedom. Instead, they want a different way of life. They want different rules, different laws than the rule of God. Any type of limit, any type of do not do this, or this is what you should do, is seen not as a gracious, you know, someone who's come before us, someone who knows more than us, giving us wisdom, rather than seeing as an impediment. It's an obstacle to me being all that I can be. People are at war with God. And even though we are the people of God, we may find ourselves oftentimes on the wrong side of the issue. In sloth, we resist our identity in Christ and his presence in our lives. We balk at the invitation to be imitators of Christ and to be transformed. So in verse number 16, here in Galatians 5, we find that we are more inclined to fulfill the desires of the sinful nature than to live by the Spirit. The battle is not primarily the body against the soul or the physical against the spiritual, which is how some people might understand our text today. Rather, it is the old me, the person I am before God redeemed me, really resisting any attempt on the part of God or the Spirit of God to transform me into a new person in Jesus Christ. If we are slothful, we have come to the point where we reject a relationship with God as a way to find fulfillment, and we've chosen something else. This is where busyness or, or being a workaholic can in fact be something that takes the place of a relationship with God. We're trying to make ourselves content with being less than who we really are. It's the easy way out. I quoted last week the words of Jesus. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. But sloth chooses an easier way, or it imagines that it does. And as such, it is a deadly vice. It is a deadly sin. I mentioned this last week toward the end of the sermon, that the mark of the contemporary Western world is a stance of bored sloth. Moderns struggle to find the world beautiful, good, or of any worth whatsoever. And they come to see people as really being worthless as well. And if you see people as worthless, then it is not too long before you begin to see yourself in this way. And yet the West, I think, in today's world, is unwilling to give up this, this boredom, this slothfulness. Because the way things are, the way we imagine things are, is we get to define who people are and what things are. And the call of Christ goes in the opposite direction from this. And as I said, we may find that we think more like the culture, more like the sinful nature, than we do like the call of Christ to follow him. 
how could we possibly be unhappy? How could we possibly be unhappy or put out by God's presence in our lives? What could make us unhappy about the gift of God's love? God's grace, God's love are the greatest gifts that we could ever possess. So why would we want to keep them at arm's length? This is what Paul deals with in our text. But again, it is not that we as the people of God face a battle body against the soul, physical against the spiritual. Rather, it is the old me resisting any change, any transformation whatsoever into making me into the person that is like Jesus Christ. How did we get to this point? How did we get to the point where having received the love of God and the grace of God, we now want nothing to do with them? And we do not want the Spirit of God working in our lives. It's easy enough to blame the fact that we are fallen, we are sinners, that we have the old nature, the sinful nature. I'm not discounting that whatsoever. But I think being here we are in November 2015, we need to look at our place in history to see how we got to where we are today. And I'll suggest um, at least three things. The first is, and we saw this in the series on how, why it is so hard to believe in the modern world, is we live in a disenchanted world. We saw this last Sunday. We have to go back to the beginning. God saw all that he had made and he saw that it was very good. When God sees what he has created, there is delight and there is joy. And he gives to those of us made in his image, human beings, certain things. One is the ability to work, but also the ability to love and to delight in his creation. If you look at Genesis chapter 2, God uh, plants the Garden of Eden. And if you read the description, it is a place of beauty. And it is there that Adam is to learn to appreciate God's creation. God plants the garden, a beautiful garden, not just a utilitarian. You go, well, he'll need this for food. It's a place of great beauty. And Adam is to appreciate the beauty of the things. The one made in the image of God is to see things as God does. And God sees his creation as very good, and so should human beings. But this is not how people have seen the world for some time now. I mentioned this last week as a side note. I've now come to see that it's probably more central than I imagine. Those who lived in the pre-modern world saw the world as enchanted, which seems a bit spooky perhaps. But what it means is that they saw things as having meaning in and of themselves. But as we come into the modern world with empirical science and observation, it came to the point where things only had meaning if human beings would give meaning to them. And so in a real sense, the world is no longer enchanted. It's not made up of subjects anymore. It's made up of objects. The pre-modern world was enchanted and so full of meaning, almost frightening, frighteningly so, and it was to be respected. But in the modern era, things mean only what we assign to them, and they become resources for us to use for whatever purpose or anything we have in mind. As a result, and I'm skipping a bunch of steps here, but as a result, modern people struggle to find the world as beautiful. It can only be beautiful if they say it's beautiful. 
and they struggle to see the world as good. It can only be good if they see it as good or of any worth. So the things of the world are beautiful in the modern age because we say they're beautiful. But it doesn't take very long before we go to the next step and that's we become bored with them. We become bored and they become worthless to us. I think that boredom is a a key component of modern sloth as we see it in today's world. People struggle to find worth in other people. We'd rather treat them as less than human. And yet at the same time, we don't want to give up boredom because boredom allows us to assign meaning to things. We assign meanings to everything, or so we imagine. And as a result, it doesn't take long and then whatever. We are bored with them and we set them aside. To live in a disenchanted world of freedom intoxicates us. We imagine how wonderful this is. We are free to do whatever we want. But more than that, to say what is beautiful, to say what is good, to say what has worth. worth. But this also casts us adrift morally and spiritually. Questions like, what are we to do? Why are we here? What is the good life? We have to create the answers ourselves because we don't imagine that there's anyone else who can tell us us tell us these things. And where freedom becomes the final authority, freedom casts us adrift in the world and people don't know what is what. Lives are arbitrary, insignificant, except for the shrill insistence that we do have significance because people, in fact, live in a disenchanted world where things have no meaning apart from us. To follow, the, to follow the call of Christ is to go in the opposite direction from this. The second thing is boredom. You may not know this, but the word boredom did not exist until the 18th century. And as such, one could argue that boredom is a phenomenon of modern reality, of modernity. And in some sense, boredom is only possible in a disenchanted world of modernity. Because if everything has meaning on its own, then how can you be bored? But if things don't have meaning apart from you, then you can easily, easily become bored. Martin Heidegger, the philosopher, said that there are three forms of boredom. The first is to be bored with something, you know, in a specific situation that you get tired of it. The second is boring oneself with something. That is to say, consider the fact that you've, let's imagine that you've gone to a party and the food was good. The music was enjoyable, fine companionship. But yet after the party, you find yourself sort of remorseful and, and not quite sure, but you conclude that you were actually bored um, at that party. Unlike the first form of boredom in which you knew what bored you, in the second form, you're really not quite sure. There's this listlessness. I'm not quite sure, but there was something missing. The third form of boredom is being bored by boredom itself. In the first two boredoms, you're you're bored by the emptiness of objects, situations, and activities. In this final form, everything is empty. Everything is empty, and you're bored by being bored itself. In a book entitled 
the philosophy of boredom, the author writes, the pell-mell rush for diversions precisely indicates our fear of the emptiness that surrounds us. This rush, the demand for satisfaction, and the lack of satisfaction are inextricably intertwined. The more strongly individual life becomes the center of focus, the stronger the insistence on meaning amongst the trivialities of everyday life will become. Everyday life now appears to be a prison. Boredom is not connected with actual needs, but with desire. The same author writes, we are desperate in our search for differences. Fortunately, or regrettably, the advertising industry is there to save us with new distinctions. Advertising is essentially nothing more than creating qualitative differences where there are none. Most products are almost completely identical for that reason. It becomes even more important to create a difference that can distinguish products from one another. By establishing such differences, we hope to maintain a belief that the world still has qualities. But we get so easily bored. The thought has crossed my mind a number of times this past week. How prone we are to say, been there, done that. And I thought, what would God say? We're made in God's image, and we're to see the world as he does. We say, been there, done that. Well, from the eternal, omnipresent, omnipotent creator, we would hear, I am there, I am doing that. There is no sense of it's completed. There is this ongoing project, as we've seen, toward the new creation for which we should be grateful. The third step, we've gone from disenchantment to boredom to finally nihilism. In a disenchanted world, we fail to recognize the wonder of creation. And we've taken upon ourselves to name nature, because we no longer call it creation, the meaning we think or feel it should have. We've moved from a disenchanted world to a world of boredom, which one is bored by the emptiness of objects, situation, activities, and we fail to acknowledge that these things, in fact, have real value, beauty, and goodness. The next step is a natural step, and that is nihilism, which many would say argues that life is without objective meaning, purpose, or intrinsic value. In reality, nihilism is a hatred of existence. It is a hatred of being. A nihilist does not want to be here. It is an uprooting of a person from his proper place, a departure of man from his home, if you wish, in God's creation. In a disenchanted world, we have tried to assert our self-creation. We are who we say we are. We give ourselves meanings. And yet this has only re resulted in what we would call nonsense. The hyphen in there. Nonsense. Desire is reduced and it becomes nihilistic. It actually becomes hatred. Desire becomes hatred. In such a culture, there is the assumption that our lives are innately and intrinsically meaningless. If we do not have the stream of stimulation and distraction, a stream inevitably subject to the law of diminishing returns. In other words, our lives seem to have no meaning unless we are constantly being stimulated or we're being diverted, distracted. 
if this is how people think, there is a what they deny here is that there is form in life, that there is beauty, and that there's a natural order of things. Those who are bored truly lack desire because they sense that there's nothing worth desiring, even God's creation. But let's listen to the words of several poets. The first is Gerard Gerard Manley Hopkins from the 19th century. The world is charged with the grandeur of God. It will flame out like shining from shook foil. Nature is never spent. There lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And though the last lights off the black west went, O morning at the brown brink eastward springs, because the Holy Ghost over the best world broods with warm breast and ah, bright wings. But we don't even have to leave scripture. This may surprise them, but the scripture speaks of the beauty of God's creation. Psalm 19, David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they display knowledge. There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. Again, from David in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. Or Isaiah, when he had his vision of God in the temple in Isaiah 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. The modern person, having accepted a disenchanted world of nature, having become bored, even with boredom itself, has come to see the world as having no objective meaning, no purpose, no value, and as such has become a person of sloth. Which means that a a person of sloth abhors what is real, has a repugnance at his or her own purpose in life, and is incapable of enacting with his or her own proper good. One writer put it this way, Unable to love the world or to perform good work, the slothful are bored and nihilistic, seeing nothing compelling or delightful in reality or their own lives. It may seem counterintuitive, but you would think a person who is bored, who is slothful, who sees no meaning in things, would just sort of just be hanging out all over the place. But in fact, a person of sloth is in fact, has drawn in, has withdrawn into himself or herself. Action is no longer perceived as a gift of oneself or the response of love that calls us. Sloth is quite the opposite. Sloth is closing the doors, pulling up the drawbridge, the moat to protect us, It is resistance against what God wants to do in our lives. 
As such, slothfulness isn't actually laziness, because oftentimes people who are slothful put great physical effort, great emotional effort into resisting God's purposes in their lives. They distract themselves from the unhappiness of their real condition, but they don't want what God has either. It is true that slothful people want the easy way. They find detachment from the old nature too difficult, too painful, too burdensome. And therefore, they put great effort into this, not realizing, it's ironic, that they are putting more effort into this than perhaps would be required to hear the call of Christ. They neglect to perform the actions that would maintain and deepen relationships of love. What we find is that sloth is, in fact, a vice. It is marked by resistance to the transforming of God's love, the transforming demands of God's love. Traditionally, Lot's wife, about whom we read once in Scripture, uh, or twice, I think, uh, she has been seen as sort of the patron saint, if you wish. That's uh, the right way to put it. But she is the epitome of sloth. You see, while she is being rescued from certain death, she is unwilling, unwilling to go, and she turns back longingly to look at the place where she came from, the only home and friend she has known. It is resistance. It's resistance. She doesn't want to go. And for us as God's people here in 2015, sloth is in fact resistance to the discipline and transformation that is required as the Spirit of God, God's love and God's grace are at work in our hearts, if we're not careful, we find ourselves saying, no, I want no part of that. Having forgotten that we are created in the image of God, we have no desire to be recreated in the image of Jesus Christ. At its heart, what this is all about is, in fact, love. In accepting God's love for us and the cost of loving him back, we resist sloth. And this is why sloth is one of the seven deadly sins or seven vices. We are made for love. And if we, in fact, do not want to love God as we should, if we do not want to be recreated into the image of Christ, then, in fact, it is because we are slothful. It is to deny who we are. And slothfulness basically says, no, I, I, I don't want that. I want to live in a world of freedom. I want to live in a world of boredom. And I want to live in a world of nihilism. In our reluctance to die to the old self, the sinful nature, as Paul calls it here in our text, the person of sloth chooses instead slow spiritual suffocation to the birth pains of new life and spiritual growth. Birth is painful. We'll go the other way. And instead of having contractions, we will just slowly be suffocated to death by our slothfulness. Such a person cannot fully accept that the only thing that will bring him or her joy is what God has given him. And such a person refuses the thing that he or she desires most. Such a person turns away in bored distaste and revulsion from the only thing that can bring life. 
and such a person prefers sorrow to joy, emptiness to fullness, and restlessness to rest. Sloth is the sabotaging agent of what God wants to do in our lives. God wants to transform us, to sanctify us. And sloth somehow seeks to short-circuit that and not let it happen. And yet, one would imagine some way that being slothful would make a person happy. I'm not doing what God wants me to do. I'm doing what I want to do. I should be happy. But in fact, this isn't what happens. We find ourselves resigned in apathy and seeking escapism in avoidance. It's so ironic, so dangerous, and something we need to think about. There's much more to say about sloth. Perhaps one more sermon will do it. I don't know. But what are we supposed to do in the face of this vice that oftentimes, like vice grips, has grabbed a hold of our consciousness? What are we supposed to do? What is the remedy for this vice? The strategy of the Desert Fathers seemed counterintuitive. Rather than seeking a new way to instill life and breath into a relationship with God, you need to try something new to sort of refresh your relationship with God. What was recommended was you need to stay where you are and you need to continue. You need to persevere. That is to say, you need to accept and stay committed to your given vocation and what it requires. That's what we need to do. Rebecca DeYoung, in her book on, on the vices, says a, a friend once described worship like a military drill. It is not meant, first of all, to be personally uplifting in each and every instance, but rather to discipline us and equip us so we can respond immediately and appropriately in battle or a crisis. We don't come together to worship God get some warm, fuzzy feeling. There are times in which there is a real sense of the presence of God, and there are other times, let's face it, where it may not have that. But it is, in fact, learning. It's doing over and over again, so that when the time comes, we are prepared to do battle. One more thing, getting back to the matter of love. In our age, we are prone more than ever to expect too much of love as a feeling and too little of love as an ongoing commitment. So when the feeling goes, boredom creeps in, then we feel like, well, that's it. Instead of saying, love is a commitment, it is a covenant, it is a promise that I have made, and I am continuing in that commitment that I have made, in that choice I have made, remember hearing recently that um, the wedding vows have been changed for some people to instead of saying for as long as we both shall live to for as long as we both shall love but love if love is seen as a feeling then that may not be very long it may not be very long at all because love is seen as a feeling but if it is in fact seen as an ongoing choice and commitment then this is the remedy against sloth. Sloth which seeks freedom to do whatever we want 
or not do whatever we want, that in fact lives in a disenchanted world that is marked by boredom and ultimately nihilism, the only answer to this is the love of God. And we love God because he first loved us, and because God loved us, we are to love our neighbor as ourselves. As a result, if we do not love as we should, if we're not careful, vice, the vice of sloth comes into our lives and takes deep, deep root. The Lord willing, we will look at sloth next week in the context of Sabbath. It doesn't seem like people who are slothful would love Sabbath. It's a day off. But in fact, sloth is, stands in direct opposition to God's command to rest and to trust him. Let's pray together. Father, far too often we imagine that the way the world is now is the way it's always been, except we have gizmos now, we have electronic devices. We fail to see that, in fact, the world has changed dramatically over the last centuries. From a world in which people saw things as having meaning to a world in which things have no meaning unless we give them to them. And as a result, we see ourselves as gods. But we easily get bored. And ultimately, come to the conclusion that nothing has any meaning. We who are your people should know better. We are created in your image and it is your desire to recreate us in the image of your son, Jesus Christ. But our old nature really resists that. It doesn't want to change because change is painful. We'd rather stay the way we are. In a very profound way, we have failed to love you as we should. Help us to see that we are made in your image. One who delights in his creation. One who is defined as love. And we should be people of love. People who delight in your creation. And who look to you as dependents who look to you by your spirit to transform us, to live lives of the spirit, not of the sinful nature. Frankly, this is this expression goes above our pay grade. To do this, we cannot on our own. Only by your spirit and your grace can the change happen in our lives as individuals and as a congregation. May your spirit speak to our hearts, not only today, but in the coming days this week. May we come to see how much we've in fact been influenced by the surrounding culture and how far we have strayed from the call to be imitators of Jesus Christ. Forgive us. And now as we leave this place, may your spirit and your grace go with us. Pray for those that are sick. 
for Mike's mother-in-law, for Tess's brother, for Tess, that you would touch them. Our lives are in your hands. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.